Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist and also a book author. We love using data to tell stories and the music you can hear is the sound of data made with two-tone, an app that turns numbers into tunes. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, dissecting the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we will chat with some of the world's top data reporters. You will get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe to datajournalismpodcast.com to see how the data is changing the world of journalism forever. Today's podcast was recorded at the International Journalism Festival in Perugia in April 2023 from a panel on doing data journalism in small newsrooms. Here the panel talk about their projects and how they won the Sigma Data Journalism Awards. Good morning, everybody. I'm just going to start. Is that all right with the people at the back? Yeah? Good. Thumbs up. Great. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Simon Rogers. I am the, for these purposes, I'm the director of the Sigma Data Journalism Awards. I'm also a data editor at Google, which funds the awards. And um, I also co-host with Alberta Cairo, the Data Journalism Podcast. And we are going to um, play the recording of this on the podcast um, after today's event. So I'm really excited today to be here for the Sigma Awards panel, one of the one of the four Sigma Awards panels. For anybody who doesn't know, the Sigma Data Journalism Awards are the only global data journalism awards that really recognize data journalism from everywhere around the world. And one of the great things we noticed this year was how many of the amazing award-winning entries were coming from smaller newsrooms. People are operating on their own or with just like small teams who are producing incredibly innovative and exciting work. So I'm lucky enough to be here today with a great panel. And I'm just going to introduce, what we're going to do is I'm going to introduce members of the panel, and then I'm going to get them to talk about their projects, and then we'll have hopefully lots of time for questions. So while they're talking, have a think about what you really want to know about their projects. Okay, so I'm going to introduce uh, the panel first off. On my right is uh, Miguel Dobrich. Right, is a, is a journalist, educator, and a digital entrepreneur based in Montevideo, Uruguay. He's also the CEO of Dobcast, which is a network of podcasts and premium content YouTube channel for the Spanish-speaking world. He's also the founder and editor-in-chief of Amanaza Roboto, which is a science and technology news website operated by Dobcast Media. Um, so they won a prize this year for the Submerged City, and I'm going to tell you what the judges said about the Submerged City. Submersis is a data journalism executed with vision. The project from Amanaza Roboto is a great example of journalism as a trigger for good, as the team's findings will very likely shape Uruguay's climate-related policies for years to come. It's also a data effort that can inspire others across the world 
to tackle the same issue in the same clean and visually compelling way. So that's great, thank you. And on my left is Yvette Cabrera, who's a senior reporter at the Centre for Public Integrity covering inequality in economic and social well-being, including environmental justice issues. Most recently, she worked as an environmental justice reporter at Grist and HuffPost and as an investigative reporter for Think Progress in Washington, D.C. Um, she currently serves as the president of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists and is a founding member of the Uproot Project, a network for environmental journalists of colour launched in 2021. Now, they won a prize for Ghosts of Polluters Past. I'm going to tell you what the judges said about that project. When Grist reporter Yvette Cabrera took more than 1,600 soil samples in Santa Ana, California, she found that more than half of them collected in the lowest income areas contained contaminants considered unsafe for children. The story of soil contamination and air pollution from nearby highways in the Logan Barrio could have stopped there, but Cabrera went further using historical deed restrictions, zoning regulations, and other archives to show how policies implemented throughout the industrial era created systemic discrimination against people of color barring them from healthier neighborhoods and isolating them in the harmful pollution. CC Way, uh, my right, is the editor-in-chief of The Markup, which is a non-profit investigative newsroom that challenges technology to serve the public good. Before joining The Markup, she served as a co-executive director at Open News and the assistant manager and director of ProPublica. CC started her journalism career as a visual and data journalist, and we've worked on projects in the past. Um, so this is what the judges said about um, The Markup still loading project, which won. It's not a secret that internet speeds vary tremendously across the US, denying households from effectively taking part in remote learning or working, not least during the worst of the pandemic. What the Markup Still Learning Project did was quantify those disparities and show how they disproportionately affect poorer neighbourhoods and communities of colour. It showed the injustice didn't stop there. Slow internet connections cost the same as fast ones, meaning communities are disadvantaged twice. In laying out the scale and inequity of the issue, the Markup did outstanding work in the public interest. So last but not least is Yuaha Law, who's a science and environmental journalist in Malaysia, co-founded Malaysian environmental journalism portal Makaranga in 2019 and was founder of the Pulitzer Center's Rainforest Investigations Network, during which he exposed failures in national forest planting programs, allegedly illegal deforestation by royal family members in Malaysia. So this is what the judges said about Waha's uh, portfolio, which is data journalism in Malaysia has been elevated to another level since it began to lend his talent. To show this contribution, it's important to note the focus of the work is on environmental issues in the country that has many needs in this area. By using visuals, precision journalism, and other tools, this production gives shape and concreteness to the issues. So just to give you guys a sense of the scale of the awards, we have hundreds of entries every year. How many was it this year, Darren? 638, okay, from every single newsroom you can imagine. They go through a kind of extensive pre-jury process where all the pre-jurors kind of go through every single entry. Everything is looked at and kind of gone through in real depth. And then there's um, my kind of favorite uh, event on the data journalism calendar, which is the judges call where people really kind of go through all of the entries. The awards are kind of different in the sense that we don't have categories. We really try to choose the best. We don't try and shoehorn entries into, into weird categories at all. So to give, that's to give you a sense of the awards and, and why they matter and how they work. And now what I'd love to do is invite panel members to time, talk about their projects for a little bit, and we'll try and save some time questions. So Miguel, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Oh, thank you so much for pressing the button. <laughs> Ciao, ragazzi. Uh, hola, in, and in English, thank you so much for inviting us because the heart and soul of the investigation 
of Amenaza Roboto, Gabriel Farias is over there. Um, we at Amenaza Roboto built the first um, climate and data vertical in my country, Uruguay. So I don't know if you can, yes, see a web, a web page. This is in Spanish and in English, and we start publishing also in Portuguese. So we analyzed um, databases on the floodline line and its impact, how, how this will impact critical infrastructure of the capital city of Uruguay, Montevideo, and different neighborhoods. And um, we felt like kind of astronauts in Uruguay because we don't have a data journalism tradition. So it, we had to, we had to develop and build a team as fast as, as we could. We picked brains from journalists from different parts of the world to see where they made mistakes. So we, we didn't have the time nor the money to, to make mistakes. So we built a, a team with scientists and we started analyzing how, as, a, as I said, the, the, the flood line um, will impact schools, hospitals, and um, we're currently working on a new investigation, which is more complex, um, that's focused on labor and climate change in three different cities of Montevideo. Um, one thing that I want to share is that when you try to do this as a small newsroom, as we are, uh, it is pretty taxing because uh, these investigations are way too expensive for us. Um, this investigation, I'm going to show you numbers if, if that's okay. It cost us approximately $7,000, which is a lot of money for Uruguay. 40 pesos is a dollar. And um, our new investigation is three times that. Um, so we, 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 we build a multicultural team with scientists from Argentina, Uruguay, with designers from Mexico. And uh, we worked our butts okay. <laughs> uh, for months. So it was pretty stressing, but uh, it was super in impactful because the legacy media outlets that doesn't do this kind of work, um, they they use our work because we work with open data, um, so we share everything that we do. So it wasn't like super important TV shows, radio shows, newspapers. Uh, it had impact regionally, um, internationally also. So it was it was amazing. The guy that's taking the picture over there, he's a genius. Our, our data journalist Gabriel Farias. I insist the heart and soul of this project, and this. This uh, let us like build the base for all the investigations that we have planned for this year and next year. So, sorry for my broken English. I, I can be so sexy and fast in Spanish, but <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to enjoy this. It's <laughs> Thank you. Okay, um, I don't know. <laughs> Next, we're going to pass to Yvette. Um, if you could talk a bit about your project, that'd be great. Yes. And we're yes. going to show it as well. Thank you, Simon. I'm also here with my um, colleagues who help with this project, Clayton Aldern, who did this beautiful map up here with my soil samples, and my husband, Daniel, who was the photographer on not just this project, but a previous project that I did on soil contamination as well. Um, so 
this project, um, I, I was not covering environmental issues or environmental justice when I started this project. I was actually covering criminal justice issues. Um, the county of Orange is in Southern California. The city where this project was done is the city of Santana, which is about 330,000 people within this county of 3 million. And um, the reason I started looking into this was because I was looking at how minors in the juvenile justice system were being turned over to immigration authorities by probation departments within the County of Orange. Um, and as I was interviewing mothers about their sons in the juvenile justice system, I kept hearing the same theme. They were telling me that their sons had ADHD. And I checked with um, a source within uh, the juvenile, um, uh, the probation department, and she said that a lot of the young boys within um, the uh, juvenile hall did have ADHD. And I thought, hmm, I'm covering these criminal justice issues in terms of the environment in their neighborhood, in terms of over-policing, in terms of poverty, but I'm not looking at the actual environment. Could there be an intersection there? And I serendipitously came across a great piece in Mother Jones looking at the connection between ADHD and lead. And so I, st I started going asking questions, um, and I found out that the city of Santana um, had much higher levels of children with um, high lead in their blood than every other city in the county. And of course, I wanted to know why. This was before um, Flint became a national story, but I looked into water. Um, the levels were so low that they weren't registering. I looked at um, paint. I looked at the number of homes that were built during the era when there was um, paint, uh, lead used in paint. Um, and the percentage was very low compared to homes built on the east coast of the United States. So naturally, the next question was soil. Um, and I knew that lead was used in gasoline. Um, so a lot of times in urban areas that had high traffic, um, that there tended to be a lot of lead that remained in the soil due to gasoline. Um, and then, of course, there's the paint issue, depending on the age of housing. Um, uh, but I didn't know at the time that also, you know, industry could have contributed. So um, I'm not a scientist. Um, I did not know how to test um, the soil. I reached out to other investigative reporters. Um, there was a, a reporter, Allison Young from USA Today, that did a fabulous piece on lead smelters where she and her colleagues tested the soil. And she walked me through the process that she went through to test the soil. Um, I used a protocol by a well-known uh, lead expert at Tulane University named Howard Milkey. And he um, gave me the protocol for how to test the soil just to find out if lead was even an issue in the city of Santana. And so the very first project I did for Think Progress, um, I found nearly a quarter of the tests, um, these were about a thousand tests that I took, came out above what the city, uh, what the state of California considers dangerous for children. But as I was testing, I noticed that there were much higher levels, like levels of 4,000 parts per million, um, which, and just to, to give you a sense, the, the threshold of what's considered dangerous is 80 and above in California. So to find levels 4,000 and, and above sort of raised the red flag for me. And so I knew I wanted to go back to the neighborhoods where I was finding these very high lead levels. And that's the map that you see up here, which I did an additional 600 tests. Um, and Clay, you know, as I was as I was testing, I had a sense of which neighborhoods might have higher levels. And so I went and focused my testing there. Um, and But it wasn't until Clay mapped this that I could see 
sort of what th this hot spot is that you're seeing up here, which is um, in the center, near the center of the downtown area, but also on the east side. Um, and these neighborhoods here that had the high levels were neighborhoods that were formally segregated, where um, in the um, mid part of the 20th century, um, the use of racial covenants in the deeds prevented the Mexican and Mexican-American residents in these neighborhoods from moving to other parts of the city that were away from industry, that were away from the freeways, that were away from the railroad tracks. Um, and what does that mean? Those residents in those neighborhoods were very well aware of the dangers of the pollution in their areas. They fought the city, they fought the zoning battles. Um, and one of the things I discovered was that I needed to tell the story of how um, how the city got to this point, because there was an accountability angle to this as well. These, um, these, this soil did not end up this way by accident. These were decisions that were made not only through these racial covenants, but zoning decisions where the city placed industry next to residential areas that were there first. Um, and they did that in areas where, you know, the residents were Mexican and Mexican-American. Today, the city of Santana is a majority Latino city. It's highly immigrant. Um, and if you don't remediate the soil, it remains there. It can remain there. The, so the lead can remain there for decades, if not centuries. Um, so it's an issue that does not go away. Um, and the other, the other angle was the industry um, angle. Um, I wanted to find out what types of industries were contributing to this. Um, and there were no answers. A lot of this history is lost to time. Businesses open and close. Um, you don't know what's there, if there was a steel foundry, if there was a battery recycling center. Um, and what I... What I did to get answers to that was to replicate work, academic work that um, two professors, one from Brown University and one from Rice University, had done looking at how these um, manufacturing registers that document the businesses in the United States decade by decade have those answers, but you have to scan those, upload them, create a database, which is what I did, um, and then map those, which is what Clay did. So we have two maps, one with the um, soil findings, one with the um, directories. And essentially what we found was that because the United States didn't start regulating these industries until the late 80s, much of the accountability of these industries is only from that point onward. The accountability for, you know, the businesses that existed in the 50s, 60s, 70s was not there. And if there is contamination that's left behind both by lead, um, arsenic, cadmium, the way the experts describe it is a witch's brew, um, it can remain there. And especially in California, where we have been dealing with drought for so long in the summer and the fall when children are playing outside, they inhale this, they, they sometimes eat it, they play with it, they put their fingers in their mouth, and it affects the number of um, children who have high blood levels. And it, it's an issue in California where 80% um, of the kids who have uh, lead poisoning are Latino. And so I really wanted to spotlight an issue that, like I said, stemmed from this crim criminal justice work where I was asking the questions, why are our black and brown youth ending up in the criminal justice system. And hopefully this can lead to other work looking at, um, you know, uh, possible solutions um, to questions that we have now about gun violence, because this is not just an issue um, here in the city of Santana. It's an issue in basically any urban center across the United States or around the world. So that's what I'm working on next, which is a lead contamination guide for journalists who want to tackle this issue in their cities.
Great, thank you, Yvette. And I'm going to pass it over to CC to talk about the MarkArts project. Thank you, Simon. Uh, you can all hear me, yes? Okay, wonderful. So um, the project from the markup that won was a wonderful um, project done by Aaron Sankin and Leon Yin. Uh, Aaron's in the room in the back as well. Um, two markup reporters and also Jeremy Singer-Vine, who's here in the front, helped as our data coach as well. Um, and this project, right, uh, you heard from the judges' comments, basically what we found at the end of the day is that when you look at the, the internet structure in the United States, there's something that's very commonly known, which is that internet is not, the internet infrastructure in the United States is not built equitably in the sense that in the more rural areas that you live, the less internet access that you have. And that's sort of just uh, the digital divide has been described that way. Uh, the companies that build internet infrastructure have many, many reasons for why this is the case and how much it costs them. But the investigation that the markup did and that Aaron and Leon worked on took it a little a step much further than that, which is to say, okay, even uh, even if we give you that, right? Like depending on where you are, what we're going to look at is the most populated city in every single state in the United States where the most people live, right? To just sort of remove that element of it. And then if you only look at those places, when we look at how much money a company is charging for internet, that they're charging the exact same price for very slow internet as they are charging for very fast internet. And where are the places where you are getting slow internet for the same amount of money? It's the places that are poorer, places that are historically redlined in the United States, and then places where the community is the least white. And we phrase it that way specifically, least white, because it's not even about, is it majority community of color? It could be the difference, I'm just throwing out a random number as an example, it could be the difference between say a community that's 85% white and say 70% white, right? It's really correlated to the percentage of white residents. And so what was kind of incredible about this project is that it wasn't something that Aaron and Leon had set out to look at specifically. They originally were looking at this idea that we just don't have good information about literally who provides internet where in America. Um, and there is a uh, national agency called the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, um, and they have self-reported data from internet providers that say, where do we actually provide internet for people? And in 2019, there was a wonderful book um, by Susan Crawford that basically said, you know, uh, turns out we have data nationally about this and it's just awful, basically. Um, the, the information is wrong. And so Aaron and Leon initially set out just to see like how wrong is that information. Um, and they had, uh, oh, and Leon also just came into the room as well. Um, and so they had looked at, okay, um, we can follow a model that some Princeton researchers had done where you go to the internet company websites themselves and you just sort of get the data for what are they advertising to the people who live in these places, right? What can you buy if you were to go to their website and try to actually purchase internet? And then what if we were able to collect over a million addresses worth of information across all of these very populated cities across the United States? And when um, Leon first did that, it was just in one city using one internet provider. And something that he found, just trying to look at availability, is it good or not? He found this idea that actually people were charging the same amount of money and then giving people drastically different quality of internet. 
And so when that was found is when the investigation sort of changed to focus on that finding to see, okay, are the really popular internet providers doing this and where are they doing it? How common is it? And then exactly who are the communities being affected? Um, and so alongside the investigation, which sort of just shares this overall trend, um, they also put together sort of uh, an updated guide for people because it turns out like if you want to switch internet providers, it's hard to figure out who can you actually switch to. And so they wrote up a little guide to help people understand how they could do that. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you know, we released all of our data. We released the methodology for how they did the analysis. Um, and then wrote up a recipe for journalists in the U.S. because we only looked at, you know, all of these populated cities, but we couldn't write about every single one of them. And so if you lived or covered one of those cities in the United States, there was a reporting recipe that allowed you to say, okay, what could you write about your city specifically? Here are the results we found in that particular city. Um, and the exciting thing about this project as well is that something that's coming up in the next couple of weeks is that Aaron and Leon have been putting together something that would allow anybody from any community in the United States to be able to do this analysis themselves because we, we weren't able to do it for every city in the country, um, but we have a way of doing it. And so could we do it in a way where you don't have to be a data journalist, um, but you could still sort of do this investigation? So that's what's coming up as well. Great project, and now we're going to hand over to our, our only portfolio winner, which is uh, for the project work. This is Yahua. You want to talk about your work? Yeah. Right. Good morning, everyone. So um, my name is Yahua, and um, so I co-founded Makaranga. We are a so we turned four in a few. We turned four years old in a few months. And my team is the smallest, I guess, the minimal definition of team you can get. And so there are two of us. Um, my co-founder, Wong Siu Lin, uh, who can't be here today. And she was my editor for the uh, portfolio series that uh, won the awards. So my presentation, I'm going to try to go far so that we have at least like 20 minutes left for Q&A. But I'm just going to share some things on, um, you know, I guess, the limits of a small team doing uh, data journalism and investigation. So for me, in my experience, the, um, I, I was, I guess I can say I'm the lone reporter. I was the lone reporter working on, on this portfolio. Um, so I look at forest use in Peninsular Malaysia. So it's something that uh, people often think uh, oil palm, right? It's like the main driver of deforestation in Southeast Asia and in Malaysia, but that's no longer the case. Uh, it's another thing called forest plantations. So, you know, I, I look into that. But in my experience, just coming back to this, the, the main limits are resources for a small team and uh, focus. Personally, that's, that's uh, you know, focus on my side. So on resources, it means like money, time, uh, talent, tools. And the way we solve that at Makaranga is that uh, we got a fellowship uh, from the Pulitzer Center, the Rainforest Investigation Networks. So it, um, you know, it paid me a monthly stipend. So that's awesome. And I don't have to worry about that and then uh, reporting expenses and uh, workshops and, and tools to, to really teach us how to do all this thing. That solves the resources issue. And when it comes to focus, um, as a small team, everything on Makaranga is ran by two of us. Everything from coding, website, social media, marketing, everything. So as I work on a story, 
I always have to be, you know, thinking about all this other stuff, right? And, and finances is a huge problem for us. So for me, you know, it's often that we can get distracted and demotivated um, because we, we are such a small team. So the, the, the solutions for me is that um, we need to have, the, the story itself needs to be built on a very strong lead or a start that I'm convinced right from the start that this story will lead me somewhere. So that's, a, that's an important one that keeps me focused. Then I need to have a checklist of hypotheses and that keeps me grounded and always, you know, because it's like a several months long kind of a project and I'm working alone, it's very easy to, you know, get sidetracked. So a checklist of hypotheses is really, really helpful. And then the third one is, of course, to be, to, to enjoy every small moment of success. Um, I got the quote right at the first go, you know, all these kind of small things, right? It's, it's really, really important. And with that, um, I, I more or less can end my talk already, but um, let's, let's just go on and share some of our stories. So... Um, it's a portfolio and there are several stories and, you know, this one um, is the core of my investigation. It's actually the least impactful of all the stories. The other ones actually su uh, successfully stopped projects that were either owned or operated by um, some of the royal families in Malaysia. And if you know the Malaysian context, the royal families are, are extremely influential, right? And media usually stay away from, from talking. This is recorded, isn't it? The, the, the media usually stay away from talking about it. But anyway, but I chose to share this, this story, this forest plantation story, because it used the most uh, amount of um, data. Anyway, so what forest plantations are? So on, on the left, you see um, a, a rainforest, you know, a, a more or less intact uh, rainforest. And this is forest plantation. So in, in, in Southeast Asia, many of these forests would be cut and then replanted, the, the site will be cleared and then replanted with a single species of fast-growing trees for timber. And in Peninsular Malaysia, 60% of the trees that uh, are supposed to be replanted are actually rubber trees. Okay. And so, you know, I, I mentioned that we need to have a strong start or a very convincing lead. So uh, in previous, I guess, uh, investigation or stories, I, I found in, in the forestry reports that the area, so this, the black line is the area, the area of forest plantations approved has been increasing and the government has, you know, uh, distributed like um, almost a, well, distributed a billion dollars in soft loans and now it's at 1.5 billion already uh, to promote forest plantations. Now then for me, the question is, okay, great, but is it working? And my hypothesis, so we write about sustainability and sustainability, of course, there are three pillars, the economy, the environment and the social aspect. So my hypothesis is totally based on this too and, and it really grounds my work. So you know, I have to convince myself that uh, you know, whether it works or it, not, or it doesn't, so what are the data that I need? So, so you know, these are just some of the indicators I was looking for. And the rest is just you know, me going out there and doing reporting. I'm sure everyone here knows this, so I don't have to talk too much about this. Um, but one thing about the Malaysian context is that... Mm, Almost like a lot of the data is being held by the government and they, they do not share it easily. Uh, in fact, some, they often do not share it. It's somewhere in there, in their scattered libraries and resources. Um, and the government libraries are also very often, um, they're not organized. You know it's somewhere in there. So it, a, a resource center could be a room as big as this and it's all shelves and it's somewhere in there. You just have to spend like a lot of time going through all of it, right? And this is where, you know, what I said just now about being focused, you know, 
I have a checklist so I know exactly what I'm looking for and that really helps. Anyway, so what, what did we find? We found that, um, so the orange line is the acreage of plantations that have been approved and cleared. Uh, and the black line is those that have been replanted. So it, it shows, we've, we found that two thirds or only one third of the projects were actually you know, going, proceeding as they promised. Two thirds were abandoned or, or left vacant and the forests were, you, know, you can say they were cut in vain. And even those that were replanted, Many of them were in a very bad situation. The business, I spoke with businessmen and they said that, you know, the, uh, the plantations is a very, very tough business. And many of the sites were, um, yeah, they replanted to get the, the subsidies from the government or the loans from the government, but it wasn't maintained at all. And here you could see, you know, we also use a lot of satellite imagery and then couple that with government data to show that in red is uh, forest lost or tree lost, and the black boxes are the forest plantation zones, and the green is forest reserves. So we could show that uh, in this state uh, called Kelantan, almost all the deforestation or the tree loss in the last two decades happened within forest plantation zones, and they all happened within forest reserves, right? And and forest reserves in Peninsular Malaysia, you can cut and 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 harvest them. Yeah, you can. So all that shows that you know, it, it went against all the, uh, I guess, the initial objectives of the forest plantation program. And we also showed that it has, uh, it really deteriorated or really impacted the lives of the indigenous communities around Asli who live there. And here is a, is a photo of one of their ceremonies. Uh, all the materials that you see them using here, right? Uh, except for the clothes that they wear, were harvested from the forest, which are now you know cleared and then turned into forest plantation. So yeah, so that's that. Thank you. That's a, it's great to see such impact. So we're going to open up questions in a sec. I have a question to start with, though, which is cheating, but I get to do that. So one of the things I think you've all talked about the kind of the challenges that come from being at small teams, but are there advantages as well in terms of being able to be kind of control of your own destiny? I'm going to start that for you. So when I started looking into lead, I was a freelancer. Um, and so the advantage there is that you have the freedom to go down the rabbit hole and dig around. The disadvantage is that you're surviving on very little. <laughs> and so I did apply for grants and fellowships. And that's really where... Um, I found the support. I, I thought um, that I was going to have to pay for the um, the instrument to measure the soil, uh, which was from Thermo Scientific. But I was fortunate in that the Orange County representative um, approached his bosses and they loaned it to me for free for both the, the Think Progress um, initial investigation and then the GRIST investigation. Um, so time was not an issue. Um, and then when I did land at Grist and then, um, subsequently CPI where I've done solutions pieces on lead contamination, they've been very, very supportive, but it is a challenge when you're juggling, you know, the, the other stories that you do once you get to, um, an organization. So, um, so I would say that, um, def definitely the, you do have to be creative, um, I did learn over time that how, how to best apply for these grants and fellowships in order to get that type of support. But sometimes it can feel like you're hitting, hitting a wall. But when 
Flint happened, suddenly there was a lot of interest in lead, even though I was focusing on soil lead contamination. It was at that point that I got support um, from from different organizations to to continue this work. But it's like it's like putting the pieces of a puzzle together. You have to be creative. You have to be persistent. Um, and so now I do share, like with my newsrooms, I will give presentations on how to apply for these fellowships and grants because they are so important in order to be able to take the time, which is really what investigative journalism is. Yeah. A lot of that is about just being able to have the time to go do this work because, you know, these manufacturing um, directories that I scanned were all across the state of California. I went up to Sacramento at one point to find some of these years. They're scattered around. They don't exist in all libraries. Um, and so it does take a lot of just um, on the ground work in addition to the soil testing, which was also walking neighborhoods, testing the soil. Um, but it, it can be very expensive. And I, and I do feel like um, if you can cobble together resources through these um, different organizations, another one was the McGraw um, Fellowship from the City University of New York. They provided me um, also with a grant to be able to pay for hotel bills and um, to be on the ground doing, these, um, doing the soil testing and doing the reporting for the stories. Miguel, right. would you like to speak to that? I totally agree with Yvette. Um, for me, the, the key advantage is that we can move fast, but without breaking things. And uh, I think that Amenaza Roboto is a reflection of the country uh, from where we are, from Uruguay. So we are some, Uruguay for me is an MVP country in, in Latin America, uh, as, as we also are. So. We can test our hypothesis super, super fast. And the, the, the value of what we do is that it can be embraced by, by our neighbors. Uh, we're currently, we've inspired different, um, uh, in Portuguese they say, laboratorios favelados. It's something like slum labs that uh, are in coastal cities that can use our methodology uh, in their cities, in Rio, in Pernambuco. So as we can move as fast and with total freedom, uh, I think we, we wouldn't be able to do that in, I'm sure that we wouldn't be able to do that in the different media outlets because uh, maybe I don't look as, uh, as old as I am. I'm 43 years old. So I've been working for, I guess, 23 years as a journalist, 24 years as a journalist. So I've been around. And I guess it's the freedom, uh, the liberty, and um, as we have like a complex uh, business model that does not depend on ads. Uh, sometimes we have, I'm gonna curse, I'm so I'm sorry. Sometimes we have, uh, fuck you money. So <laughs> we don't feel the pressure because we, we've uh, had instances where, where they tried yeah. to make us feel the pressure and we were, free to do what it needed to be done to serve the community because whenever I say we can focus on the work that we want to focus, it's always serving the community. It's not that uh, we are so bright that we're going to show them. We work with communities, for communities. We offer a service. Yeah, that's very cool. Cece, do you want to talk a little bit about your, um, your team and, and what the size it was and how that worked together? Yeah, so I would say... Um uh, definitely, especially since Yvette started this project when she was a freelancer. Uh, mm -hmm. In that case, uh, the markup is probably the biggest team uh, or 
it's it's complicated because we we are definitely the biggest newsroom, I think, on the stage. But we're also structured a little differently in that um, a lot of different places have, say, like a separate data team if they are bigger or um, uh, data journalists that are sort of separated out versus the markup was founded with this model that data journalists and journalists work sort of hand in hand together in partnership. Um, and so the team on this project, the primary team was two people, which is Leon and Aaron. Um, but we do have sort of um, support in the sense that like, you know, we have folks who are thinking about our social media, right? Um, and we have editors who like, you know, are able to bring sort of their own skills to the table. Um, but the it's not like we have, you know, 20 people working on this particular project mm -hmm. and how it's structured. Um, I would also say, you know, when you think about the advantages of being small, I think something that's also true, not only of the markup, but of a lot of small places is that uh, I think we're like a lot less precious about the fact that we are publishing our journalism. So what I mean by that is that all of anything that we publish at the markup is Creative Commons licensed. So anyone can republish it. And one of the things that we try to do, and we did in this project as well, um, is try to get more and more journalists to publish the work because it's relevant to their communities, right? So um, to add on to what you just said, we're just trying to figure out like the people who need to read this, how do we get to them? It doesn't have to be from our website, literally, mm. right? And so one of the partnerships um, that had been set up, and this was previous to me arriving at the markup by our previous editor, Evelyn, um, was a collaboration with the Associated Press where they distributed our story when it came out. And it was a markup story, but you know, it went out on the AP wire and so anybody could print it. Um, but then some of the like companion cool stuff that we did with that as well is that we worked with some local places that are not AP members. They probably won't choose to pay for that membership. Um, but we know that those cities are impacted by what we found. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we worked with um, a couple of places. Um, Sarah Alvarez, who was speaking the other day, did a piece on launch day with us about Detroit specifically. Um, and the cool, you know, the cool um, outcome of sort of the the transparency of how we did everything and giving everybody our data is that then, you know, naturally, I, I think something over six or seven, maybe more local places did their own stories using our data. Yeah. And that's just, you know, there's nothing precious about it. We don't make you ask us. It's just out there. The um, benefits of transparency. Uh, just yeah. So you can, you know, Jeremy's here. Yeah, I think you've been a drill star in, you know, like sharing data and getting out there. Um, Yohoa, can I ask you quickly, um, I noticed you using Flourish for your work. How important is it to have those kind of visual tools openly accessible for when you're working on your own like you are? Oh, um, well, it, it's very, very helpful, uh, mainly because it's free <laughs> and, um, and it's easy to use. And um, yeah, so having those tools, um, I mean, in the, in the past few years, everything has been so easy to learn. Like there's so many tutorials online already and visualizations is what, I think what people already expect um, it's a bit slow, uh, you know, the mainstream media in Malaysia still is quite slow in using all these things, uh, data visualization or even data journalism. But as a company that started at this time, right, like I think it's expected that you learn all this. And, and just going back to the question of, I'm uh, just going to add one thing on the advantage or the benefits of being a small team. I think the main advantage or the main benefit, um, other than we can work fast, is that every member in the team suddenly just accelerates in terms of like skills and development. Um, I think that's like the, it's, it's quite a, well, it's a personal benefit. 
and that one person or the two persons would then be able to, you know, in the, in the future, do when any story they do, you know, they, while they're reporting, they're already thinking about the layout, like what I need to have in, in, in a story. And I think that's a, that's a great advantage to have. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Right, we have a little bit of time for questions. Um, we'll wait for the microphone. I'm going to go first to Sabrina, isn't it? Hi, thanks so much. That was really interesting. And uh, just as a quick side note, the thing I love most about data journalism is just the complete range of which uh, the way that the stories came from and, and, and how you sort of found that data. I think my, my question is really sort of about post-publishing. And it's something that I'm trying to work out now for myself in that, you know, once you've published this, these pieces, what are the kind of priorities um, and the kind of, I guess, your top ways of uh, measuring impact outside of just, you know, your kind of basic engagement? So um, one of the things that I always hope to do is when, when we do these reporting projects is to create um, data that the community that's useful to the community. And so I was really pleased that um, when the initial 1000 tests came out in the Think Progress investigation, there was um, a group called Orange County Environmental Justice that took the data and ran with it. And they it basically galvanized the community to push the city council and policymakers to pay attention to this. So they then partnered with the University of California, Irvine, to do their own soil study. And it matched our hotspot. Um, and um, they said, we don't want to just look at this as an issue of um, soil. We want to look at the impacts on behavior on kids in the educational system and kids in the juvenile justice system. So they're looking at it as a lead to prison pipeline. And how do we change that? So while they were doing all of this, the city was... Um, uh, creating a new general plan. So they were updating it and they were going to city council meetings, telling them we need to pay attention to this. Um, they first passed a climate resolution acknowledging the lead problem in 2020. And then this past year, they, um, they acknowledged that lead was an issue in the general plan update and they created a set of policies to remediate the soil um, to do something about it. So it was, it was a big victory for the residents um, to have done that to have pressed the officials and then gotten some results because that's ultimately what they wanted. And there's still a lot more work for them to do. Like I said, in the educational system, they know that the kids are being expelled and suspended and that the schools aren't looking at these behavioral issues as a potential lead, um, a, a lead exposure issue. But it is in the stories that I've been covering, like with this one young boy that had been um, arrested for bringing a pocket knife to school, his defense attorney used the lead exposure because I, his mom got his lead test results I had tested the soil in his neighborhood and his defense lawyer used that as a as a defense for him in the juvenile court. And the judge said, no, we're not going to put you in juvenile hall. It, it would have been like five years um, and felonies for bringing a pocket knife. And so they ended up um, putting him on a program where he did was doing community service. So the 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 community activists know that that sort of um action needs to be, the schools need to be reformed. And so that, that's what they're working on now is how do we take this beyond, it's a, it's a problem in the soil to how do we fix these systemic issues. Thank you. Okay, we have five minutes. So does anybody else have any questions? Uh, I think we have one at the front here. And then. 
Yeah. Hi, guys. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but for my benefit, it'd be great. You're obviously all very successful and skilled data journalists now. Could you talk a little bit about how you started your careers, um, especially for people who might be looking to get into the industry? Yeah, we go, Cece, do you want to take that first and then we go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I went to journalism school uh, for college and I had no idea I wanted to do data journalism because I didn't know it existed. And my journalism school had a class called CAR, which was computer assisted reporting. And I thought, I know how to use a computer. I don't need to take that class. Um, but what ended up happening is I got into data journalism because I really liked doing data visualizations. I thought it was a very unique and like quick way to help people understand massive amounts of information that was very insightful. And um, so I sort of, uh, in college at the time, uh, we, we didn't yet have classes geared towards journalism students, teaching them how to do this. And so I just started messing around, trying to make websites, trying to code my own thing. And then once I actually started working as a professional journalist, um, in the United States, and I think it's very um, friendly to sort of people outside of the US, there's a community called NICAR, which is the National Institute of Computer Assisted Reporting. They have a conference. Um, their uh, parent organization is called Investigative Reporters and Editors. And when you sort of join that um, organization, there's sort of tip sheets on how everybody did everything uh, from every conference that has ever existed, um, anyone who has won an award, uh, very similar to what the Sigma Awards are providing as well, which is a write-up of how people did everything. Um, and I just recommend to anybody who's starting to learn this kind of skill mm. is to just smart, start with something small and build on top of it. Mm. So not to put the pressure on yourself to do a massive project, but in any story you would normally do, use a bit of data. And then at each step, the next story, you already know how to do what you did last time and build a little bit more on top of that. Um, and I think that kind of practice over and over again is really what has helped me uh, over time get better at it. Yeah, the best the best way to start is plenty to start. And there are so many way, easy ways to start. The Sigma Awards have like the full archive of like every entry is on there as well. So you can see hey, it's just a real incredible kind of library of data journalism now, which is, is worth checking out. But Miguel, do you want to speak to that? I guess I'm an alien here because I wouldn't define myself as a data journalism the journalist, sorry. I'm just a journalist that started working on culture. Then from culture, I went to tech and cover science. I managed to work with a, an amazing data journalist that's over there. And my focus and um, my formation has to do with uh, building the, the best conditions financially uh, to, to have teams to do this kind of research. So I'm, I'm, uh, I would think myself as a tech slash science journalist, not mm -hmm. a data journalist, but uh, I'm like, uh, I'm dangerously business oriented uh, because if we don't get uh, the, the conditions, the money to, to do this work, uh, this would die. So we, we, with Gabriel, we complement each other to, to do the data, the data investigation that we need to do. Cool. Okay, we have like one minute left. So does anybody have a question that can be answered with very short answers? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, I just want to say thank you to the panel and um, thanks for this incredibly impactful work and for sharing with us. Thank you.